I'm not sure that I've ever followed Tom into the pulpit, <laughs> but I'm preaching on inferiority today, and so I feel I'm feeling inferior. Tom, I appreciate you coming up and, and leading us there. And uh, what a what a wonderful gift we have here in our church. I've made, I've mentioned this before, but I want to mention it again. It's rare, rare, rare that David and I actually sit down and coordinate every little thing about what we're going to do with the worship. I'll just I kind of leave that up to him. And I just give him a topic. Sometimes I forget to give him the topic, and yet he still somehow comes up with perfect music. It has to be the Holy Spirit. That's what Tom said. Uh, the, the songs that you've sung have prepped you already right now. If you're not ready, you know, then, then you weren't paying attention. All right. But I really appreciate the way in which the Spirit leads and guides uh, those who prepare what happens around here on Sunday morning. And so I really, uh, I just want to say that again. David, I know you're right there above me. And uh, I look up to you, brother. I want you to to know that. This morning, I want to tell you about a fellow named Roy Mays. Uh, You've never met him. Uh, Roy grew up in my home church. He was two years older than me. And... um, Roy was one of these guys that just, he did everything perfect. I mean, just, he was an awesome basketball player. I was not. He could get up in front of the congregation and lead and speak, and even from from a younger age. You have to understand, my home church was a breeding ground for preachers. Uh, The minister at my home church believed that if you were a male and if you were breathing, you should be in the ministry. And he saw, he just, he would, he would and we kind of knew this. And he'd start us out uh, in children's church. That's where we started. And in fact, there might be some ideas here for you. If you want somebody to come over, you got some young preachers here in the, like starting out. You might even get Tom to speak, maybe. He's an old version of this. But anyway, <laughs> but that's where we'd start. And then if he did pretty well there, then you'd get moved up to another group and be the, maybe the, the, uh, then eventually you'd be preaching to the, to the junior high youth group, you know. And uh, it was just this automatic understanding that you were probably going to preach the gospel if you attended Southland Christian Church in Lexington, Kentucky. Seventy of us stood by when we buried Brother Wayne a few years back. Seventy of us were there in attendance. And, of course, Roy, Roy was there because Roy did everything well. He was amazing, uh, awesome student. I went to Johnson Bible College when I started uh, my academic training for ministry. Uh, Roy went to Cincinnati Bible College in Cincinnati, and, and I was so grateful <laughs> because I wasn't going to have to follow Roy anymore. And then what did I do? Halfway through my sophomore year, my dad uh, got sick, had a heart attack, and some other things. And Mom said, why don't you come a little closer than Knoxville? And, you know, I was from Kentucky, and I was kind of wanting to get out of Tennessee anyway. At least when I, in Cincinnati, you could look across the river and see Kentucky. Now, that, that was a big deal. So I transferred to Cincinnati Bible College and Seminary, and there was Roy doing everything perfectly. He had the most perfect filing system. He had all the best illustrations. He could preach, and he was awesome, and here I was, way behind Roy. And I was really good friends with his brother, 
And his brother didn't like him any more than I did. <laughs> so that's, that came to mind as we're talking to me and you and all of us about inferiority. Because you know what? Deep down, deep down, how do you really feel about you? Who is it in your life that somehow kind of diminishes you maybe? Or you feel smaller whenever you're around them. Or you just don't feel like you're good enough. You know the word inferiority is defined as the condition or state of being or feeling inadequate. Especially relative to one's peers or to others that are similarly situated. It's called the condition of feeling lower in status, position, or quality than others. An inferiority complex is an unrealistic feeling of just general inadequacy. And it can be caused by actual or imagined beliefs about things. Now maybe you have experienced that. That deep sense of unworthiness and lack of confidence maybe. And inability to accept you, accept yourself. Maybe as God made you, as God has directed your life. And you know why that happens a lot? You know why? I know you do. It's called this today's world's emphasis on so many things. Beauty, popularity, intelligence, wealth. These are the standards we use to measure our self-worth. And they shouldn't be. And you've got your own. This is the interesting thing about preaching. You're sitting there listening to these words, and the Holy Spirit is going to take these words, not because I'm preaching them, but because they represent principles that are in God's Word, and they're going to, He's going to try to apply that to our hearts today. And when I start talking about this inferiority business, some of you sat back and thought, oh my goodness, He's going to be talking about me sometimes. You maybe brought some of your inferiorities with you today. That sense of just, I just don't measure up. You know, I'm just not, not able to do what I need to do. And, and we live in such an unforgiving, upside-down world. It rewards the haves, and it punishes the have-nots. And in this brutal culture of the survival of the worthiest, the less gifted... We try to, to kind of, well, we try to kind of overcompensate sometimes. Sometimes we, this is where I think the word snarky comes from. Y'all heard that word snarky? Isn't that a great word? Any of you know somebody that's kind of snarky, you know? You get a little picture in your mind right now, don't you? Oh, you were looking in a mirror. I'm sorry. No, I mean, this culture doesn't help us to feel good about ourselves. And we end up discovering our best efforts to prop up our self-worth just don't seem to be enough. And by the way, just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we're automatically exempt from this issue. So this morning, as we continue our summer series on dealing with trials, challenges, I want to take you to the timeless wisdom of Scripture because we need God's help here to deal with this painful trial of inferiority. The Bible records the lives of three individuals. Two who really struggled greatly with inferiority. And one who by the world's standards probably should have, but he didn't. And let's take a look at it. 
First, let's take a look at Moses. Remember Moses? Not the Charlton Heston version of Moses. By the way, anybody here that doesn't know who I'm talking about, if you're probably under the age of 10, you probably don't know who Charlton Heston is. All right. Well, you see Tom Spencer, and he'll tell you all about it. (laughs) And uh, you'll know about it. He was an actor. He played Moses uh, way back in another era. But when we come across the real Moses in Exodus 3, what we see is a man whose background is totally littered with failure. He committed murder. That's kind of a big problem. He was being exiled because of it, but he also was being kicked out of all the wealth and the luxury of Egypt because, you know, he was, he was kind of in a good position. And then all of a sudden now he's in the desert. He's in the middle of obscurity. And for the past 40 years, herding sheep, Moses, is, he's got to have been feeling kind of less than, that he didn't measure up. All the guilt over all of those failures. But despite Moses' feelings of unworthiness, God still wanted to use him. And he got his attention through this uh, amazing burning bush. And the Lord spoke to him. And the Lord commissioned him to go and set the people of Israel free from the tyranny of Egypt. Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord says, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, he said to Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, Israelites, out of Egypt. God had given him awesome news. But all that Moses heard was, I'm going to send you to do it. That's all he heard. And from that moment on, all of his failures, all his inadequacy, all these things flashed through his mind. And verse 11 says that Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, isn't it interesting? At first, doesn't that sound like a humble response? You know, he's oh, oh, Lord, who am I? I could never do that. I could never do this task that you've given me. Christian counselor Gary Collins says, Humility involves a grateful dependence on God and a realistic appraisal of both our strengths and our weaknesses. And from this and the rest of Moses' responses, here's what you see. You see that self-doubt has affected his vision to the point he can only focus on himself. He's not focusing on the one who speaks to him. Just listen to his conversation with God. God promises his presence. Moses responds, well, what if they don't believe me? God said, I'm going to give you my power. Moses responds, well, you know, I'm not really very good with words. God assured him of his plan. Moses said, please, Lord, just get somebody else. And he vividly reveals the truth of how we're viewing ourselves and how it will affect and interpret everything around us. So how do you see yourself? That's the question I started this with. How do you view you? Moses vividly reveals the truth that it's going to make a difference. It explains how you can look straight into the brilliance of the morning sun and see only darkness. How God's fiery presence was only inches away. Remember the burning bush? He's there. God's with him. And all Moses could see was the darkness the blackness of his own insecurities and inadequacies. 
And he's not alone. Moses is the first one of these men, but the second one was named Jeremiah. And a few seconds I'll take you to Jeremiah in the passage. But it's 18. In fact, in the few seconds it would take you to turn in your Bibles to find Jeremiah chapter 1, textually in the Bible. 800 years had passed from Moses all the way to Jeremiah. And here God again wants to recruit a man for his service. Verses 4 through 6 say, The word of the Lord came to me. Jeremiah is writing this. He said, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. But like Moses, instead of humility, Jeremiah responds with, inferiority look at verse six he said oh sovereign lord i don't know how to speak i'm just a child isn't it interesting the very first thing that we sometimes attack and deal with and we really should do more with it we really should try to conquer it but we immediately come up with the excuses for why we can't do whatever it is god wants us to do it's automatic i don't know how to speak he said i'm just a child Do Jeremiah's and Moses' excuses remind us of any of ours? Love my enemies, Lord? I don't know. You see, I'm not, really, I'm not the best at that. Witness it to my neighbors. Lord, well, you know, I, I just not real good at talking to people about stuff. If only I had. If, if only I weren't. And, and these, all these familiar excuses just glorify and have glorified self-esteem, low self-esteem for centuries. But I want you to see one Old Testament figure whose faith protected him from feelings of inferiority. His name was Amos. Now, if you were to measure his value by the world's standards, Amos wouldn't do very well. He had no formal education. He wasn't attractive or eloquent. His simple, you know what he did for a living? He was a fig picker. Not like Fig Newtons when you go to the grocery store and get your figs that way. No, he was a fig picker from a town called Tekoa. He raised uh, from the sycamore. The sycamore figs is what they were called. And that's what he did. He raised them. He had no formal education. He had no ambitions in a lot of ways. And to top it off, for working with these figs all this time, his hands were stained from smashing the fruit and everything, getting them ready for the buyer to buy so if you looked at it, one glance at his hands, everybody knew what he did for a living. And Amos, if he were looking in a mirror, he couldn't see a lot of profit material here. But nevertheless, as always a nevertheless when it comes to God, he was the man that God chooses to represent him to a prideful priest named Amaziah. He was a priest that was absolutely full of himself. And the Bible tells us that, that when this socially polished and finely dressed and eloquent unsaved priest, first, here's what Amos has to say. The Bible tells us he said to Amos, Get out of here, you seer or you prophet. Go back to the land of Judah and earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Can you imagine how a guy like that could become a priest? But notice, Amos doesn't back away. In spite of his shabby clothes, in spite of his stained hands, he's on a mission. He knows he doesn't have what it takes to pull it off. 
but he also intimately knows the one who does. And that is the difference. He doesn't look at the ground and wonder what in the world he's doing there. He keeps his eyes focused on the Lord. He stands firm on the truth that God has revealed to him. And he, he refuses to leave until Amaziah hears what God has to say. Verse 14, Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd and also took care of sycamore fig trees. But, verse 15 says, the Lord took me from tending the flock and said, you go and prophesy to my people Israel. Now, you see the difference here? Amos is demonstrating how the Lord can transform anybody who will keep their eyes focused on him. Doesn't matter what your issue is. Doesn't matter what other people are doing better than you. Every one of us has a calling from God on our life, if we're Christians, especially if we're Christians. And we don't have the right to tell God, well, Lord, you don't know what you're doing when you ask us to go do these things. We just simply trust. What is the song? Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but what? But to trust and obey. It is possible to be freed from the bondage of measuring your self-worth by the values of the world. Now, I want to take you to the New Testament because there's lots of principles in the, in the New Testament to personally apply. This is the application section. This is really the place in the message where you need to fervently begin to write things down. But since I know that only a few of you are doing that, I know the rest of you have perfect total recall. And you don't need to write anything down. We used to give you an outline, and it would have one, two, three, four. But you know, I, I thought we'd move beyond that now to where you could keep this in your own order, however you want to do it. I want to give you some New Testament principles to personally apply in our lives. Now, we've seen these three examples from the Old Testament. Now, let's go to the New. Number one, the Lord's estimate of you and me. What is it? What do you, what do you think he sees? Matthew 6, 26, Jesus shared a profound truth that can dispel any clouds of self-doubt. Here's what he said. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? I mean, even though the focus of this verse is on worry, the point made about our value, you can't miss that. Have you thought about how much more valuable you are than so many other things going on in the world around you? If God is concerned about the little birds in the sky, will he not be even more concerned about you? God loves you to the extent of sacrificing his son. Can any greater, any greater value be measured? Sometimes I think we Christians are just, we get in the habits of talking down to ourselves and not realizing the very words of God, the very words of Jesus are designed to lift us up. That's number one. Number two, your worth in the church. Now, that's Christ's body. The body of Christ is gathered here this morning. And you have value to this congregation. Every living soul around the world who's a born-again believer in Jesus Christ is a member of his body. Christ is the head of this body, the head of this church, and all these churches, and the rest of us. And as the Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 12, 
The rest of us in the church are the fingers, the arms, the knees. Some of you may even be a toe, I'm not sure. But the tiniest organisms nobody can see, the body is designed by God to be used. Instead of being content, though, to be the parts God's designed us to be, you and I invite inferiority to creep in. You know how we do it? Well, we compare ourselves to everybody, you know, like Roy Mays. Every now and then when I'm preaching, I would think, oh, it comes to me, Roy could do this better. He probably could. I was in his shadow for years, and I had to, I had to finally just have someone talk to me about it because I really didn't have confidence. But we do this to ourselves. God has designed us to be used, and we invite this inferiority to creep in. Listen to verse 14. The body is not made up of one part, but of many. And think about this. Context of the church, but physically, what is that? What he's saying? If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It would not be for that reason to cease being part of the body. If the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't really belong to the body. It would not be for that reason to cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Isn't this, I mean, this is Kentucky logic and reasoning 101. Okay, you got it? You know, if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? And when the eye wants to be the ear and the foot decides it really doesn't want to be, you know, I think I'll be a nose today. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's almost humorous. Jesus had a sense of humor. Doesn't make any sense why we should feel so poorly about ourselves. But when you keep reading in verse 18, God tells us that he has placed each of us where he wants us. That all the parts of the body, those that are seen, those that are unseen, those that may seem to be essential and share an equal value. But you know what really matters about all this is this third point. How do you see you? What's your estimate of you? Romans 12, 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but... Rather than think of, your, think of, rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. You see, if pride becomes our teacher, then we become arrogant and our sense of self-worth gets overinflated. We begin to think we're bigger than we really are. Under the influence of inferiority, though, we belittle ourselves into thinking, well, we're, we're not good for anything and and uh, we're no, nobody cares about us. We can't do what others do. But what Paul is saying here is that we have to have an accurate assessment, an accurate estimate that comes from the Word of God about our significance. And we can have such an estimate only as we accept God's view of who we really are. Now, putting this together, there's four big ideas I'll leave you with. Here's big idea number one. You've got to realize that you were prescribed before you were born. You were prescribed. The Bible tells us this. Realize that God made you. You're not just the product of blind chance, but rather a work of art from the mind of God. Your disposition, your talents, your ways, your personality is not accidental. He's placed his signature on you with the indelible ink of his image. We bear the image 
of the living God. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that's not the stuff of inferiority. Now, we should not be overly carried away with that because humility kicks in and we realize we don't deserve such an honor. But it's a right kind of humility. Nothing about you or the days of your life, even before you took your first breath. The Bible says nothing has escaped the loving scrutiny of your heavenly father. Listen to Psalm 139, 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, did you catch that? You and I were designed and prescribed before we were born. You and I, you know what this means? You and I are not accidental pond scum that got struck by lightning. You know, tell that to your evolutionist friends. Tell them gently because they, they're confused about that. What an amazing statement. We were thoughtfully created by the God of the universe. So that's the first thing. You've got to realize, okay, the second R. You've got to remember the growth process is still going on. We're all under construction. We still are. At times we get frustrated with our, our slow progress, though. And it, that, that is a danger because that opens the door to self-defeat. We say negative things about ourselves. Ever talk negatively to yourself? You know, when, you, when you're going down the road and your speedometer is creeping up on 80 or 90 here on 37, and Ryan Miller shows up behind you, <laughs> lights flashing, and you first thing comes out of your mouth, oh, I'm so stupid, what a doofus. Oh, and the second thing is, oh, but I know Ryan, he's going to forgive me. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. Now, we can't say that from experience, can we? But maybe some of you have met Ryan along the road as well. I don't know. He's not talking about it, but, but you get the idea. Oh, my friends, just how important it is. It, I love this. Philippians 1, 6. Be confident of this, that he began a good work in you. He who did this will carry it on to the completion to the day of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? I mean, get, get your eyes off yourself. Stay confident in the fact that God's at work in you. He's making the changes and encouraging uh, the improvements. All for his glory and for your, your well-being and my well-being. Every believer should memorize this Philippians 1 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion, even until the day of Jesus. So you got to realize and remember number four, you got to refuse. You refuse to compare yourself with other people. 2 Corinthians 10 5 says, We demolish arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Jesus Christ. You know what that tells me? The Apostle Paul is telling these people in his day that it is important that you and I monitor the way that we think. 
Because we don't always say everything to everybody that we might be thinking. Have you ever been that way? I mean, do you tell the truth every time somebody comes up to you at every moment? No. I don't think we do. But you're thinking stuff. And you and I need to be careful to let the Holy Spirit capture those thoughts, those negative thoughts, those thoughts that put ourselves down and make us miserable to everybody else because we're always saying, oh, well, I can't do that. I'd never do that. We need to let the Holy Spirit take those captive. And he will if you ask him to. Our feelings of inferiority thrive on these negative thoughts. But in order to, to confront them and deal with them, you've got to stand guard at the door of your mind. Inferiority never really rests. It will seize every chance we give it to brainwash us with a list of lies about our unworthiness. It boils down to whether you will submit to the liberating power and truth of Jesus or are you going to be held captive by Satan's lies of inferiority. So you've got to realize, you've got to remember, you've got to refuse, you've got one more R. You've got to respond correctly to your shortcomings. I transferred from Johnson Bible College to Cincinnati after my dad had a heart attack, as I told you. And uh, Roy was two years ahead of me. So I was going in as a sophomore. He was uh, getting ready to graduate pretty soon. And uh, lo and behold, I got a room in the dorm. Guess who's right across the hall? Roy. And, and my dad's name was Roy. And so sometimes I saw all people whose name was Roy. Well, forgive me. I think we have one in our church here. I don't want to... He's actually listening outside. So Roy, don't pay attention to this. Um, but anybody named Roy, I've always kind of looked at him careful because that wasn't a, a really popular name with me. Many times I would be in my room unhappy with some discipline, and I would call Dad Roy to myself. Never did I call him that in, into his face, though. That would have been a near-death experience. But, um, but you know, Roy, he, and I got to know Roy. I, I knew his brother, brother Kent really well, but I got to, to watching this guy. And you know what occurred to me? I said, this guy's the real deal. He loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And God had blessed him with an almost photographic memory, the coolest filing system on the planet from preacher's points of view. Blessed him with leadership skills and abilities. Before he died, he died of brain cancer. But before he died, he was the executive pastor of my home church. And Roy Mays was the guy that... Uh, that kept the preacher in line all the time because Wayne Smith, the minister, knew nothing about money. He, he told people, don't give me money, I'll just give it away. His wife knew stuff about money, and she was aggravated with him all the time. But anyway, but Roy was, a, a, I got to looking at all the ways I've been blessed by him. He challenged me to be more particular about certain things about my preaching. He challenged me to, to read more. He challenged me because I was always trying to be like him, even though it bugged me. You know, everybody in your life like that? There's somebody you just want to be like them, but you can't stand them, you know? And, but, but yet they possess things that you see as attributes that are, are special. And that's how he made it into this message. Because I had some other illustrations I was going to use. But I thought, you know, he kept coming back to mind. You know, the Bible, the Bible is... Uh, there's a little phrase there that says, uh, he being dead still speaks. You know, talking about somebody, that, that, a prophetic type person. And, and I, I, I really want you to understand, you've got your Roy. There's somebody in your life 
that you really admire and look up to. Just make sure that it's for the right reasons. It's not because you may be inadequate in some area. Maybe you are. But it's to appreciate how God wired us and put us together. You know, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Listen to this. To keep you, Paul said, keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. Paul, who was, I mean, he was like a Roy Mays in some ways, so gifted. But because of that, he was given a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him. God allowed him to go through some challenges. Three times, Paul said, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. You know what he's saying? He's saying you and I should first ask God to correct our shortcomings because they may be legitimate. Then, if the Lord chooses to leave those with us, we must learn to accept our shortcomings as a way for God to display his power in and through us. Third, he goes on to say the reality of shortcomings in our life is really not all that bad. Now, why is that? Because it often, it is often in the area of our weakest moment, our weakest part of our lives, that we most clearly can see Jesus' work in our lives. Feelings of inferiority that have built up over the years are difficult to overcome. But it can be done. You just got to resist the temptation to view our self-worth and the worth of other people the way this world does. You cannot, as a Christian, adopt the worldview of the world. We can overcome it. The Bible gives us the power, strength, and wisdom and insight to do that. But we've got to be willing to let God work through us. And sometimes the areas where you feel like you fail the most are the areas that God's going to use to bring glory and delight and salvation to other people. Irving Berlin was an American composer. I close with this. You may not know his name, but you've, you've sung his songs. God Bless America it was written by Irving Berlin. Here's the one you'll remember. I'm dreaming of a what? White Christmas. White Christmas, Irving Berlin. And there were countless others. One time in an interview, he was asked, you know, we ask you all these questions all the time, but is there one question you've never been asked that you wish somebody would ask you? And he didn't even hesitate. He said, you know, there is one. Nobody's ever asked me the question, but I wish they would. What do you think of the many songs you've written that never became famous? You know what he said? He said, I still think they're all wonderful. I want you to know God has an unshakable delight in what and whom he has made. Hear me? Unshakable delight. He thinks each of his children, he thinks each of us is wonderful, even though we know we're not. That's grace. Whether we're ahead in the eyes of the world or not, he will still cherish us as his most loved offspring. He still thinks we're wonderful. Do you believe that this morning? Yes, 
Can you get past those inferior feelings to see yourself the way God sees you? And when you can do that, it doesn't make any difference how the rest of the world sees you. Because you've gained all you need. All you need. Let's stand together. Father, thank you so much for your blessings upon us this morning. And I just ask that you'll take these words, the words of the music, all the parts of worship that we try to do here, Lord. I pray that you will take those moments and impress them upon us so that when we leave the building and throughout the next few days especially, we'll remember the truths that you wanted us to remember. Not, not the stories, not the jokes. not the. You'll remember the truth that came from your very words that you love us. You love the world so much that you gave us Jesus Christ. We were so valuable to you. He made a way for us to be saved from the evils of this earth. Oh, Lord, thank you for that. Help us never take it lightly. We are loved. In Jesus' name.